The following is Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com. Welcome back. This is Nature of Business, and I'm your host, Chrissy Coughlin. Thank you for joining us on this fine, beautiful summer Wednesday morning. Well, at least summer here. <laughs> uh, we are very, very excited to have D- Dick Gottenauer uh, on the line with us. He is going to be talking to us for the next uh, half hour or so. Dick Gottenauer is the former president and chief executive officer at United Stationers Incorporated. They're North America's largest broadline wholesaler distributor of office and business products. And they have sales of roughly $4.5 billion and are headed annually. And they are headed, uh, headquartered in Deerfield, Illinois. Welcome, Dick. Thank you, Chrissy. It's very, very nice to have you on the on the phone, and, and I'm uh, so excited to talk to you about this concept of higher leadership. We talked a little bit about it um, in the first part of the show, just to, to tee up our listeners here. And um, as you know, I, I had Michael Beer on, on the show back in February. It's hard to believe it's been back in February. It seems like yesterday, but I had him on the show talking about his book uh, regarding higher ambition. And you were featured in, in the book quite prominently. And I would just, why don't we start with just getting a, a, a little background um, about you. I know that you, you served as the, uh, the, 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 the CEO of United Stationers since, from about 2002 to since last year, I believe. Uh, talk to us a little bit about your background and what brought you to United Stationers. Okay. Uh, well, I uh, got an MBA and uh, went to work for a small privately held company in uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin, a cheese company called Schreiber Food. Uh, a little different path than most of my fellow uh, graduates. I started out as a second shift supervisor, hmm. turned down offers from McKinsey and others that were, I think, twice as high in salary. Um, but I figured this company was going places, and in fact it did. I think it's the second largest cheese company now in the world. Um, and they're in broadened out. But I was there for a number of years, got some great opportunities, went uh, from there to uh, another company called Universal Foods, uh, which had a cheese business, and I ran that for about eight years, and then went, uh, jumped over into consumer products with Dial. Uh, Dial, had, which was the old Greyhound company, had uh, bought uh, a number of household brands and were attempting to create a business out of it, and so I came in to, uh, to do that for them, and we had some great success. Uh, we took our laundry business, for example, under the Purex in five years from the number five brand to the fourth brand to the third brand, and we were actually very close to knocking on Unilever for the number wow. two brand in a pretty short period of time. So some great success there and, and uh, went to work for, left there, worked to work for um, uh, a company in California, uh, Golden State Foods, which was a privately held company, so I've been at this point, then, it's two private and two public. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, 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 Golden State Foods uh, was a big McDonald's supplier around the world. So uh, I came in as their president, and um, uh, that company, was, uh, which was the objective, was uh, sold um, to other private investors. I stayed on for a transition period and then uh, took over the job as CEO at United States. Oh, okay. So... So tell us a little bit about the experience at, at United Stationers. Uh, I, I, sure. You you were there for, for quite some time as a CEO, and mm-hmm. you really did create an atmosphere at the company that was, 
was incredibly positive. What happened the first day you showed up at work? What what was this? What was going on? What was what was what was the experience that you wanted to create when you said, "Okay, I'm going to come on as the leader of this company." Sure. Uh, well, first of all, the company had been experiencing sales and profit decline for a couple of years. So, uh, from the board's perspective, it was a little bit of a turnaround. I had the advantage of uh, my predecessor uh, was was there for six months, the first six months. So I basically told the board that for at least four months I want no direct reports. And I went out by myself and uh, visited customers, rode on trucks, worked in the facilities at night, and just asked everybody a lot of questions about, asked customers questions, suppliers questions, et cetera, and learned really, I think, from the ground up what was what was really uh, going on in the company. From that, uh, when I came back, um, it was clear that the company had uh, a number of issues. So the the thing that I set out to do was to, one, get uh, uh, the company back to being in love with its base business. They had kind of fallen out of love with it and gone on to some side endeavors that didn't work. Uh, two, to kind of create a high-performance organization because we were a service company and and the best way to create a competitive advantage is is through creating a high performance organization that can't be easily duplicated mm-hmm. and third we had the company had some good strong values which were why I, one of the reasons why I came but they really weren't walking the talk or living out those values so the question was how do we make those values real uh, live and live them in, in, in our decision making and then most importantly probably was aligning the culture, the strategy, and the structure, getting those clear for people, uh, and uh, making sure that they, they, they were in alignment. So those are the four steps that, uh, that, that I determined we needed to do. Um, so I look for opportunities right off the bat to say, okay, where can I demonstrate values? So the first thing I could do, <laughs> and you look for little things as, as well as big ones, the first thing is... Uh, um, uh, there were there was a couple indoor parking spots, and you can imagine in, in that were heated. That you can imagine in in Chicago winters were <laughs> were coveted spots. Right. CEO had one of them. The first thing I did was not park in the interior, parked in the outside parking lot with everyone else. <laughs> um, we uh, we had a a, 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 na- a national right. meeting, and I learned at the time that uh, if you were a senior manager, where you had your own room, but if you were lower down, you shared a room with someone else. Which apparently, and I knew this when I was out talking and asked, talking to salespeople, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Everyone hated sharing a room, so I told my team, I know we were. I said, this is an opportunity to to live our values. Um, I know we are strapped for cash, and our profits are down, and we're, we're not performing. However, you know, this is an opportunity to say which is more important, our values, you know, or the bottom line. And so um, uh, when we kind of offered the team the choice of we could either reverse it so the senior management could double up and the lower people could have their own rooms, or we could, we could spend more money and everyone had their own room. Somehow we made the decision that everyone would have their own room. <laughs> And uh, surprisingly, uh, it had a huge impact, uh, and it set the tone. It began to set the tone that, hey, you know, this isn't just about the bottom line. These, you know, the management team is going to live values, and values come first. So those are the kinds of things that you look to do. And then secondly, um, we, uh, I knew from, from that four months kind of wandering around that uh, we had tremendous inefficiency. So 
mm-hmm. uh, created what we called War on Waste, and I, and I did that for a number of reasons. But one, drive out costs, but two, to use, get people to work together in teams. So mm-hmm. I brought out, brought in two organizations, Send Delaney, to teach people around, which really helped us on culture shaping uh, and, and, and creating high-performance teams. And so everyone went through that. And then a second organization that taught, you know, the fundamentals of Six Sigma of how you go about solving problems. And we set a goal. First year, I think it was $34 million to take out waste. Um, and uh, before the training came in, the n- normal thing happened. First of all, people believe that if it was there, they would have gotten it out by then. Mm-hmm. Secondly, um, even though we created these teams and we incentivized them and we tracked them and measured them, you know, they didn't believe they could actually make, move the needle. And for three months uh, before they got their training, in fact, the, the thing happened that always happened, which is everyone had the answer and no one listened to each other. Mm-hmm. So eventually we arrived into training, and, 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 uh, and what happened was uh, essentially we, we, we hit our goal and we've overachieved our goal pretty much every year after that. So the company... Out of that experience, one, got a taste for how it wor- what it's like to work in a team, and two, uh, we started to take control of our own destiny and our own belief in, in ourselves that, in fact, we could make a difference and get results. Mm-hmm. So that was the second thing. And then, and then we, I reorganized, uh, brought in uh, uh, some new, new talent, and created functional excellence as well as uh, cross-functional excellence. Um, so, and then finally, the, the fifth thing I realized when I was kind of wandering around is that we, as an organization, had been hiring B and C players and not enough uh, high-performance people that could go up two or three levels in the organization. So for the first two years, uh, you couldn't hire a sales manager on up um, without the final candidate coming through my office. Hmm. And it took uh, about six months before the organization finally realized, don't send these candidates to Dick because they're going to get rejected. <laughs> and they started hiring A players. And what they found when they found, hired A players is they were getting better results and actually making B managers look better. And pretty soon, that's what people wanted to hire were A players. So those were the five steps that uh, you know started the process of um, culture shaping and changing uh, the way the company performed. That's great. And some of these, these, you know, like you said, they're, they're, you do look for opportunities, and it's amazing how something as simple as an indoor parking spot can really just sort of turn the tide and, and, and sort of just change the overall attitude of, of people. How many employees are, are at United Stationers? Well, over 6,000. Okay. And, and when you recruit, or when you did recruit, you, were, you know, we're mm-hmm. talking about getting the, the, A, the A-game people, do you... Do, are, are the recruiters inside the company, did they eventually look at the business schools and look for people who were at certain business schools that were getting more than, let's say, your typical MBA? Or were they trying to just get the, the best of the best and then hone them once they're inside the company? Well, the first thing that we had to do is start recruiting from business schools. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good a start. Where you're, you're hiring B and C players, what happened is... You wait till you have an opening, yeah. and then you realize you have nobody inside that's been groomed and ready or that you have confidence that can move up. And so you go on the outside, but once you go on the outside, you're already behind the eight ball because you desperately need somebody, so you go out and hire somebody with experience. Mm. And to get somebody with experience to come, you don't get the A players because they're progressing nicely through their existing companies, so you get some more B and C players. So, right. you know, 
so you get into this vicious cycle. So to break it, we we um, we did a number of things besides uh, you know the the screening process. Uh, we we did as you suggested. We started going to uh, undergraduate and, and and business schools uh, and recruiting the talent from those schools. But we found the best way to do it in our particular case uh, because our company isn't a brand name, and so people when they said United States, they go, well, "Who are they?" <laughs> right. um, we actually felt that the best way for us was to create internships. So for the summer, we would bring in some. Uh, some uh, we bring in a group of uh, college and graduate students from various schools, um, and we would give them projects and see how they did. And um, what I think, for the most part, what they were most surprised about was one that they had real jobs when they came. Two, the culture was so positive, and three, um, you know, they were war- warmly received. So. Uh, we actually, from that experience, were able to um, each year pick out uh, some of the better performers and mm-hmm. offer them jobs. So that's how it got started internally from going ahead and recruiting, you know, uh, right off the college campus. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk a little bit about the CEOs out here. When you, are, when you work mm-hmm. for a public company, you have expectations, and we were talking again about this a little bit in the first half of, of the show. You have you have institutional, um, you have Wall Street that is basically saying, you know, we need numbers, we need numbers, we need profits. And you've certainly interacted with numerous CEOs. And what was your observation of these CEOs that were leading companies? And do you feel hopeful about this upcoming generation that you're recruiting? And, and why is it so rare that CEOs really get this, this issue of, you know, this, this concept of, of higher ambition? Yeah. Well, you know, I've had this the pleasure of working for, I think, five different CEOs, either directly or uh, one level down, so pretty close exposure to them. Um, and so I've learned a lot. I try to learn from many. Each one of them has taught me something. Uh, sometimes they've also taught you what not to do. <laughs> right. yeah. um, but one of the learnings uh, from all of that is, uh, is that the, um, and this is a concept that Sendalini teaches, that, but the, how powerful the CEO position is in sh- the sh- what we call the shadow of the leader, mm. now, how powerful that position is in shaping the culture of the company. And I always, when I was at various levels and running pieces of the company, tried to, to, you know, to influence the culture, which you can do to a certain degree, but you're still embedded in a larger organization, and unless you change the larger, larger organization, it's very difficult to have you know, transformational impact in a, in a unit. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, I got the, uh, you know, the advantage of seeing some CEOs who ran private companies, then you have more degrees of freedom uh, and public companies um, uh, and the pros and cons uh, of each of those. The public companies, CEOs, there was more discipline, typically, because it was forced on you by, uh, by boards and by um, financial community. Mm-hmm. And that discipline was a good thing. Um, but there also has the negative side, which the private companies don't have, which is, you know, the, the focus on the short term. And the private companies can look longer term and make, you know, longer term decisions. Right. But the, if I looked at it, the, 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 what I concluded from all that was that, that if I wanted to have the impact that I did to shape a culture, uh, I needed to get move up to the ladder eventually to the CEO position, and that's where you could really, um, you know, have the impact. 
Um, I never did subscribe to the theory of the big brain theory, uh, i.e., if you're the top position, then you're obviously you're smarter than everyone else, and you know you've got right. the answers. In fact, I I, I've, I really um, um, kind of subscribe to a different view, which is the the world's expert on any particular job is the person doing that job. And so, if you want to improve what's going on, you should be involving that person in you know in how do you go about improving it corollary to that is that no one person has all the information, all the insights, all the, the perspective for really good decisions. And it's the power of the team. If you can get a team yeah. with diversity to really, um, you know, debate issues and, and, and get all the information out, you can make far better decisions and then you get the buy-in from it, et cetera. So that was, that was some CEOs got that, some do not. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and those who did, you know, uh, you know, you didn't have to. You could you could you could push more things down. You could push more things down to your team and to others, uh, and therefore, you know, you weren't at the center of, of decision making. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I found was that it, you know, um, it's when you try to go motivate employees, you can't say, well, you know, look at we're making more profit for our our shareholders. Right. Uh, that's just not going to be the thing that makes them come to work. So. Um, I, I came, I, I early on came away with the, the sense of, you know, doing, uh, that it was, you could do better, you could do well uh, by your financial requirements by doing good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so companies who actually uh, understood the importance that they had a role to play in social responsibility uh, and that that was just, should be at an equal setting to, to your financial responsibility that by doing both, you could do more of both. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so the leaders that I found particularly inspiring are those who got that concept um, from those who, who, who didn't. And you were asking the question of, you know, what, you know, what, are you optimistic about <laughs> right. future leaders? Um, I am. Uh, what I found is if you lead in such a way, uh, the people that are that are most excited about it uh, are um, your younger managers. Uh, and if you create an organization that's purpose-driven, values-driven, that is more than about profit but about giving back, uh, those are the ones that are most excited, most inspired, most engaged. Uh, energized by it uh, doesn't mean that everybody isn't. Uh, I do find everyone does get inspired and energized. Um, but a lot of times you can you can turn give great responsibility over to your younger managers who just take some of these projects and 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 do things that even they are surprised about. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm optimistic uh, about that. And there is I don't ha- I find I didn't have to explain you know to younger the younger managers, why we wanted to spend resources against, you know, doing the right thing mm-hmm. uh, by society. Mm-hmm. Um, not that the older ones, you know, it, it, it's just that they're a little more set in their ways. And uh, so that gives me, I think, some, um, some, some uh, optimism about, about uh, where we're headed. Well, that's good to hear because I do hear that quite a bit on my my, my show about the younger generation, and I, 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 you know, these these are going to be the CEOs of companies, and it's good to hear that you know you you feel that this is going to you know the companies have a have a chance here to actually 
have a social, you know, have, have really have an impact on the, on the social and environmental, um, you know, aspects of our lives. And that, that begs the question of, so the, the, the work versus life. I mean, I, employees definitely do not want this to be separate. And it'd be fun for our listeners to know what, what, is there anything in your personal life that or experiences that you had that really informed the way that you, you led at, at, at United Stationers? Or is, is it just something that's innate? It's probably well, a little bit know, of both. I would say <laughs> <laughs> I think it comes from both, probably. But yeah. um, it really starts with I would call a belief um, uh, that you know this concept of you know by doing good you can do well. Yeah. Um, and for me, that started with you know faith and family, kind of the, the environment in which I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but also uh, learned things from working with um, nonprofits. Uh, doing some my own personal giving back, mm-hmm. and then being part of companies that uh, and watching leaders that got this concept. So I would say I'm a little bit of a product of all three. Mm-hmm. When I was younger, you know, um, I actually even considered a career in a faith-based nonprofit organization, uh, and decided that what I really wanted to do was have a, an even bigger impact. And uh, which eventually led me to, which I thought I could do from a platform from a uh, from a, lo- a larger company. Which mm-hmm. eventually, when I got into the company, got, uh, made me realize that until I got up to the CEO position, I really couldn't have the kind of impact on this topic that I would like to have had. So that became kind of part of the mm-hmm. my objective. But one of the things you learn when you get involved yourself is there is true joy in giving back. And uh, and you learn the power of uh, purpose of you know doing something that that is beyond yourself. Right. And if you can find that purpose, uh, and and it can in any way be connected to what you're doing uh, in the, in your day job, uh, then you're a pretty lucky person. You're, it's a win-win. So those <laughs> are some of the beliefs that kind of led me anyway towards uh, uh, the direction I took. Well, that's that's great to hear. So I know that the the, the United Stationers had this strategy of enabling um, partners to succeed. So there was this uh, this motto, and and it I believe was created under your your leadership. What was the actual feedback loop um, at United Stationers? In in other words, how did you learn about the priorities of the employees, and how were you then able to incorporate them in into United Stationers in a timely manner? Sure. Well, it kind of fit in the overall culture, but our culture was pretty much one of an empowerment, and so we created, you know, as a senior team, what we called was our purpose, which is enabling our partners to succeed. We're a service organization, so we're not in, you know, it's not an easy one like medical products where you're saving lives or hospitals <laughs> right. or something like that. Right. Um, yeah, but people are not going to die if they don't get their, their, their office products. <laughs> um, but by creating a purpose around that was really kind of what I call servant leadership, it was around helping others. So it was helping our customers succeed, our suppliers, our, our own associates, and the communities in which we live, work, global community, local community, and the shareholder community. So by taking a look at all of them and say our job is to make their their ability to succeed, you know, uh, better. And so that was kind of an outward focus. And um, uh, it, what it enabled us to do is it tied our strategy into that. It tied our um, the work we're doing and social responsibility and sustainability. It pro- provided the platform by which all of this fit together. 
and the employees who go, oh, I get it. Mm-hmm. I get why we're doing this and why we're doing that and how it all fits together. They could, they could also see, look, at, you know, most of our customers were small businesses, and their customers were small business. So what we did, in a sense, is we performed a lot of the processes for these small businesses that they couldn't do themselves very efficiently. Mm-hmm. And by partnering with us, they were able to compete against very large businesses. And so as we kept saying to our employees, Small businesses create most of the jobs in this country. Our country needs jobs, and by us enabling small businesses to succeed, we're creating jobs for America. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of helped put a broader perspective. The sustainability work we were doing gave a broader perspective. The giving back to local communities was a broader perspective. And it helped people to say, hey, you know, this is more than about just hitting a particular target. This is about doing something important. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was the framework. The other framework we used was if we took this and said, okay, um, how do we make this um, real to our associates? Getting back to the question you're asking, and how do we get what, you know, where their interests were. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we did something which is, I guess, not necessarily often found. I'm not sure, at least from my experience. We set about doing our, basically our, 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 our commitment to giving back and sustainable. We did it in a reverse way. We said, how do we do this in such a way that um, we're teaching our associates the joy of giving back, the joy of purpose? Um, and let's focus that way rather than what's in it for the company. Mm-hmm. And we figured that if we focus that way, and by doing it that way, we essentially did things like the money went out to local councils, they made decisions over where it went. Mm-hmm. Um, we, so we empowered them. Um, we, made, we, we gave people time off to pursue areas uh, of giving back of interest to them. Uh, we provide a lot of opportunities for them to join others in, in, uh, in uh, learning the joy of giving back and doing things. So what we did was, 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 was uh, kind of backwards in the sense that it was on the belief that if we did it right and for the right reasons, one, it would be more believable and genuine. Of course. The trust would go up, and, uh, and therefore the enjoyment and engagement would go up, and the company would benefit. And we didn't even know all the ways in which it would benefit. We found out it's, it, it's far more than we suspected. Uh, we have not only engaged employees, but customers now join our foundation. They're using a lot of the same activities. They're learning from the trust value went up with our customers, and they're, therefore they're using more of our services. Our suppliers actually even give us funding, uh, uh, you know, from their foundations to saying, okay, you can spend it better than we can, and they're partnering with us. So there's been all these side benefits in terms of breaking down barriers and diversity and and what have you. But what we did essentially was say, look, if you're interested in sustainability, we are as a company here, form a team, we're going to support you, and you run with it. And, of course... Mm -hmm. You know, that's, or if you're interested in a particular area of, uh, of, of helping in a community. Mm-hmm. And so that's been very powerful. Uh, and other organizations have seen that, and other companies have seen it, and they say, wow, this is different. <laughs> this is different than the right. top down kind of foundation organization where you kind of, the top decides where the money goes and they give an annual report, and everybody says, isn't that nice? Right. And very few people actually read them. <laughs> <laughs> and people, exactly. <laughs> 
Well, this is this has been this has been terrific for those of you uh, who have joined us a little bit um, after we initially started the conversation. We're speaking with Dick Gottenauer. He is the former CEO from uh, United Stationers Incorporated. So I, we unfortunately are running out of time, but I have one quick question for you. So how how is this this affected? How did all of these initiatives initiatives and how did your leadership affect employee retention? So. Did you have employees sticking around for your entire tenure, or did you did you see a real a real a real difference quickly, or how, how did that play out? It it had a very positive impact, Walt, on on our ability to re- attract the kinds of people we wanted to attract, values based people, mm-hmm. um, and also retention because the number of people that are excited about their jobs and what they're doing about the company and what it's doing um, uh, it went up. Significantly, and it was already pretty good. But um, as this thing clicked and and it became an important part of their lives, people were actually, you know, find they were thanking us <laughs> for enabling them to do these kinds of things. Right, right. Um, and so, you know, when you get your employees thanking you, you know, that's that's a wonderful thing for retention. And our best recruitment tool is just to let you know these college or MBA students talk to our other associates. Mm-hmm. and their excitement about working at the company. Absolutely. Well, this has been fabulous. Thank you so very much for sharing your story, and I, I hope that you are enjoying immensely your retirement. You, it's well-deserved. <laughs> very well-deserved. <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Dick. All righty. Okay, bye. bye. The proceeding has been Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com. 